Uh, this morning I'm going to be reading from the book of Acts. We're going to be continuing our series through the book of Acts this morning. I'm going to read uh, Acts chapter 4, verses 1 through 22. If you're using one of the Bibles that's in the chairs in front of you, that would be on page 911. Acts chapter 4, verse 1. Just to catch you up before I read it, uh, you may remember if you've been here the last couple weeks, uh, Peter and John had healed a lame man in the name of Jesus. Last week we were able uh, to consider Peter's uh, speech sermon in light of this man's healing at Solomon's portico. Uh, and this week is week three of this particular account and we are going to be talking about a trial uh, so let's read Acts chapter 4, starting in verse 1. And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas, the high priest, and Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man... By what means this man has been healed? Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people. For all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. This is your word. 
The word of God is living and active and it is without error sufficient for all things. I am not sufficient for all things. And so therefore I ask, Father, that you would work through this weak vessel by the power of your Holy Spirit. May my words be faithful to your word. And I pray that our hearts would be strengthened. For those who are trusting in Christ today, that, that we would be transformed from one degree of glory to the next as we behold your glory. For those in this room maybe who have never believed in Jesus, I pray that the gospel would be clear and that today would be the day of salvation. You are mighty. You are a saving God. Would you do that work among us today? We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues. And you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious about how you are to speak or what you are to say. For what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. Brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? Jesus promised his disciples that mistreatment and persecution were going to be a part of following him a part of speaking in his name. If they treated the master in such a way, his servants should expect the same. And up to this point in the book of Acts, there generally has been no outward opposition. Even, even those who were mocking the disciples when they were speaking in tongues on the day of Pentecost, they ended up being among the crowd that was cut to the heart when Peter preached his sermon on the day of Pentecost. In Acts chapter 2, verse 47, we learn that the infant church had favor with all the people. Times were good. But the tide is turning. People are generally okay with what you do until you become a threat to them. Jesus was a threat to the religious leaders. Why? Why was Jesus a threat to the religious leaders of his own people? Because though they held positions and spoke as the mouthpieces of God, or at least they said they were, 
Though they memorized the scriptures and they taught the masses, these were generally a people who honored God with their lips, but their hearts were far from him. So when Jesus called even the religious leaders of the Jewish people to repentance and true faithfulness, when he taught as one who had authority, when he healed and he cast out demons, when he raised the dead, he became a threat to them. A threat to the kingdom of the religious leaders. A threat to their way of life, their authority. And now here we are, maybe seven weeks or so after they thought they had taken care of the problem. They had Jesus killed. They did away with their enemy. Now they have another issue. Jesus' disciples had spoken in tongues. They're preaching that he's alive. They're hanging out at the temple and telling people that Jesus is alive. And now... Now we've got this guy. Everybody knew him. 40 years old. He's been begging at the temple for as long as we can remember. He's lame. He's not lame anymore. He's walking. He's leaping. He's jumping. He's praising God. And he's been healed. And when asked, how did that happen? You got these guys who are saying... Oh, the guy you killed healed him. Oh, the guy you killed, he's not dead. He's alive. And he's reigning. And by the power of that name, the name of Jesus, this man is walking. So now, you put yourself in the position of one of the religious leaders and you say, this guy is walking and leaping and jumping and praising the Lord and we got these, these apostles who are teaching this stuff at our temple. This is our temple. This is our thing. And now they're saying that the guy we killed is the one who's doing this. Our problem has not been solved. Today we continue this account that runs through most of chapters 3 and 4. Uh, two weeks ago we considered the healing. Last week we considered the sermon that followed the healing. And this week we consider the trial. As Peter and John stand before the religious leaders in Jerusalem for the first, but not the last time. And in spite of the evidence that they're telling the truth, the tides of favor are beginning to turn. Ever so slightly against the followers of Jesus. And so with the rest of our time, I want to consider from this text three things. The rulers, the apostles, and the cornerstone. Simple. The rulers, the apostles, and the cornerstone. And, and I want in, in each of them for us to consider how each, uh, in each character in this story, we see ourselves, how we, how we see our own tendencies toward kingdom building. Our own tendencies maybe toward fear or cowardice. And then be reminded that the name of Jesus is our hope and the hope of the world. And there is no other name 
given among men by which we must be saved. So with the ruler, we'll start with the rulers. At the beginning of today's passage, as Peter is speaking to the people, he and John are confronted by what it says here in verse 1. You should have your Bibles open, by the way. Come on. Are they open? He and John are confronted by the priests, the captain of the temple guard, and the Sadducees. I have a lot I could say about all that, but I'll just say this. The captain of the temple guard was the second-ranking priest in the temple. And he had the authority to make sure uh, that affairs on the temple grounds were in order. It was almost like the temple police. He was taking care. Did he have the authority to arrest people? He did. He did under this system. He was able to arrest people if necessary if they were considered to be in violation of temple protocol. The Sadducees were essentially a political party among the elite of Jerusalem, a part of the Sanhedrin, the council, the supreme court, if you will, in a sense. Uh, They were, those mentioned in this uh, account, the Sadducees here, might have been supporters of the priesthood, very likely that the the priesthood at that time was uh, led by Sadducees. These were probably lay people who had a vested interest in the continued success of the priests. What else do we know about the Sadducees from Scripture? Kids, do you know anything else about the Sadducees that's said in the Bible? This is a tough one. Know anything? They were Sadducee. I heard somebody say that. Do you know why they were sad, you see? Some older kids are speaking right now, uh, but that's okay. Uh, They did not believe that there was such a thing as the resurrection. They did not believe in the resurrection from the dead. The Sadducees, in that way, were in opposition to who? Well, Jesus, yes, that is good. You came to church, you know. All right, tell me. But who else? The Pharisees. The Pharisees and the Sadducees did not see eye to eye. The Pharisees and the Sadducees were not friends. They were only friends on one particular occasion when, it could, when they could unite to go against those who are fighting against the temple, Jesus or his followers. But the Sadducees deny the resurrection. Luke says that the Sadducees were greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. This word annoyed is not like I've got a bug flying in my ear. It's not like I ordered something and they brought out the wrong order at dinner. This is a deep disturbance. They are disturbed. I'll give you two other places where this word is used in Scripture. One is how the disciples felt when a woman came and anointed Jesus before he, before he died. Right? You, you remember that account? She comes and she breaks open this very expensive jar of perfume and anoints Jesus. And it says the, the disciples were, some versions might say, irritated or indignant. You know, the, what, what is she doing? Wasting this precious ointment, of course, we know. How could it be waste if it's used to worship the Lord. We also see it later in the book of Acts 
when there's, there's a young woman who has this spirit of divination and is following Paul around saying, this guy's telling you about Jesus, this guy's talking about Jesus. She, she becomes a, an annoyance to him, hindering the work of the gospel, it says uh, in the book of Acts chapter 16 in Philippi. So we have this word. They're greatly disturbed. They're not bugged. They're not irritated. They're deeply disturbed that these guys are here teaching this stuff. They were bothered, first of all, it says, do you see in this verse? They were greatly, this is verse 2, greatly annoyed, first of all, just that they were teaching at all because they were teaching the people. They were annoyed by that. But they are also annoyed because they're proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. This could not be tolerated. And the Sadducees had a vested interest, it seems, if you read historically, a vested interest in keeping the peace. The Sadducees seemed to have a very good relationship with the Romans. And they were going to be allowed to stay in authority as long as there weren't any problems. And for them, keeping their position, keeping their authority, keeping their power was vital. So Peter and John are arrested and taken into custody for the night because everybody knows a trial can't happen at night, right? Not allowed to do that. Do you know of any trials that happened at night in recent memory in this, in this book? Now you can say it. Say that church word. Yes, they did Jesus' trial under the cover of darkness because it was a sham. But the next day, the tribunal gathers, the rulers and elders and scribes, along with the high priestly family, it says. Annas, who was the former high priest, and Caiaphas, who was the present high priest, his son-in-law. Uh, and then we don't really know much about this John or Alexander, but it's the family of the high priest. Along with the whole Sanhedrin, this trial begins, and the, and the witness is set in their midst. So we have, just to get a visual here, it's kind of like a, a big half circle, the Sanhedrin, where they were going to meet. And right in the middle of it is going to be the key witness and Peter and John. Who is the key witness in this trial? Not Jesus. The healed man. This guy is going to be put on display. In the center of the trial, it reminds me, that there, there's this account in John chapter 9 of Jesus healing a blind man. You remember this account? Jesus heals this blind man, and the, the religious leaders are just pounding on this guy. Like, you know, give glory to God. Tell us what really happened. Tell us who this guy is who healed you. And he's like, listen, I don't know who this guy is. Here's what I know. I was blind, and now I see. And he did it. And that's what we have here with this healed man, right? Like, yesterday I did not walk. Every day of my life before yesterday, I didn't walk. Today I walk. That man did it. That name did it. It's extremely important for us to see in this account that there was 
zero question on any side of this trial as to whether this man had actually been healed. Right? There is no question that he was healed. And I think that speaks to what ultimately drives this trial. This man is well. A little bit of a side note here. I think it's really important for us to remember. While our faith is a faith that is one that believes without seeing, our faith is a reasonable faith based on an actually resurrected Savior. Truly and physically resurrected Savior. And here in front of these people is real, tangible, factual evidence that this man was healed by Jesus who had been resurrected. He's standing there. And as he stands before them, the question is posed to Peter and John, by what power or by what name did you do this? What do you think? What answer do you think they wanted? So they say, by what power and by what name did you do this? What do you think they wanted to hear? What were they hoping for? Do we see any evidence in this passage of a genuine pursuit of the truth? In what we read? Is there any evidence of a genuine pursuit of the truth from the leaders? I think what they wanted was silent compliance. They were looking right at a man who had been healed. They heard it was by the name of Jesus of Nazareth, the crucified and resurrected Savior, that he had been made well. And their response is what? First of all, they look at Peter and John. So they're taking in all the evidence. We got a healed guy. Resurrect, they're saying it's a resurrected Savior. Now they're looking at Peter and John. And when they look at Peter and John, what do they see? What's it say? Uneducated, common men. When it says uneducated or ordinary, what it means is they don't have the training we have. They didn't go to rabbinical school. They don't know the scriptures like we do. What business do these two guys have standing in front of us? We know the scriptures. Who are they? But they had been with Jesus. Which was true and more vital than they could possibly understand in that moment. In the face of convincing evidence, these rulers had nothing to say in opposition. That's what Luke says here. Nothing to say in opposition. That is, we agree. This man used to be unwell and now he's well. A reasonable next step. Imagine. Imagine this morning... Somebody was in our midst who we knew had been bedridden the day before, miraculously healed the, the day of. And they wanted to tell us how. I hope and pray that we would say, we want to hear how. We want, we want, to, hear, want to hear your story. These rulers, in verses 16 and 17, it says, uh, what shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. 
That is a strange reaction to a miraculous work. We wouldn't want something like this to happen again. We wouldn't, wor wouldn't want word of this to get out. We know you did a miracle and we can't deny it, so keep your mouths shut and don't talk about it. They couldn't punish Peter and John because there was no reason to, first of all, but that hasn't stopped them before. But they couldn't punish Peter and John because everybody around was praising God for this miraculous work. What is in the heart of these rulers who profess to know God? What is in their hearts? Love of position. Self-protection. Do they care about the truth? No. Not when it comes in conflict with their way of life. Truth can be a very inconvenient thing when it threatens the kingdom of self. Examine yourselves today. It's easy to look at this passage and wonder, how in the world could these guys deny the truth that was standing right in front of them? How in the world could they do that? But that truth and what was behind it threatened to destroy everything they had built for themselves. And brothers and sisters in Christ, where in your lives is the Lord pressing on something with truth? with what you know to be true, and you are ignoring it because you know what it will or what it might cost you? Where is the Lord pressing on something with the truth of His Word, and you are saying, I don't want to hear that right now because I want to do what I want to do. He tells you that what you have in him is better by far, but you do not believe it. You like this kingdom that you have built, and the truth is threatening it. Maybe it's prestige, or power, or comfort, or indulgence. Maybe it's a relationship of some sort. Maybe it's an idol of some sort that you know. You, you try to tell yourself, oh, he's not pressing on that. That's not, nope, I don't, I don't need to listen to that. Fingers in the ears. But he's pressing. Hey, if he's pressing, that's grace. Don't ignore it. Don't ignore truth because it's inconvenient or uncomfortable. These people looked at this healed man and they ignored it because it was inconvenient. Do not be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Church leaders, start with the elders of this church. We must examine ourselves in light of this passage. If the truth is not what drives our leadership and our ministry, we are in sin. If we fall in love with position, 
or use our position to befriend the world at the expense of truth, we are in sin. Church, if you have leaders among you, including present company, who compromise the truth for love of power, love of praise, love of the world, remove them. If a local church refuses to do so, then leave that church. The issue at hand is not, this passage is not about the way we've always done things versus the new way of doing things. It's not about a change in what instruments we use or what songs we sing or anything like that. This passage is about truth versus error. Salvation versus damnation. And therefore, we must take it to heart too. Friends here who t- today who do not believe in Jesus as Savior. Who, you, maybe you've heard the truth. Maybe you've heard the gospel. And you're saying, I don't believe. I just want to ask, why? Why don't you believe? Is it because you have weighed the claims of Jesus and his followers and found them to be untrue? Or is it because you like what you have and you don't want to abandon your kingdom of self and trust in Him? That's what's before these leaders in this passage. They know that following, that turning and saying, you know what, actually, Jesus is the Messiah. He really is. It's going to cost them. And they've decided that what it will cost is not worth the sacrifice. And if you are here today saying, I don't, I don't want to trust in Christ because He might demand something of me that I don't want to give up. Please consider again that all that is promised in Him is better by far than all the treasures of this world. The salvation and hope that are found in Christ, the forgiveness of sins that are found in Christ, the eternal joy that is promised in Christ is better than anything this world has to offer, better than any gain you might get from denying Jesus, better than any gain you might get from the pursuits of this world, the sins that you live in. If, if the gospel is not believed by you, if you're saying, I don't believe, Because it's inconvenient. I urge you to reconsider today. No matter what it might cost. Consider that the hope found in Jesus Christ is real, true, and lasting. Even if it costs you everything in this world. What you gain in Him is better by far. But the rulers were not interested in this. Now that was the end of point one. But points two and three are much shorter. What do we see of Peter and John in this passage? Peter continues to be the spokesperson for the apostles at this point. Upon being questioned by what power or by what name did you do this, Peter answers. Peter answers... But did you note a little key phrase about Peter and his answer? Peter filled with the Holy Spirit. 
answers. Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, answers. Why do you think Luke mentions this? Don't we know Peter has the Holy Spirit? Does he have to say that? Why does, why does Luke mention that Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit? What do you think? Okay, okay. I heard a lot of good stuff, a lot of mumbles. That's good. I think it's fair to say uh, we do know that Peter had been filled by the Holy Spirit. Uh, this will not be the last time in the book of Acts that this phrase is used. And it seems likely that Luke is talking about a special measure of the Spirit's work, an extra special measure of the Spirit's work being seen in and through Peter in this moment. An unction to speak with boldness. And what I want us to see in what Peter says, though, is that Peter doesn't come up with some crafty speech, right? He just says what's true. Verse 8, Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. There's a boldness here that's noted even by the rulers. In spite of the fact that neither he nor John were qualified to speak to the level of those men. Peter was not ashamed to testify to the healing and saving power of the name of Jesus. What could have happened to Peter? Peter starts to speak. What do you think he thinks might happen to him? He's jail? He has it on pretty strong evidence, like really recent evidence, that he might die. Right? Right? He could say something that could be what seals his fate on this earth. Yet Peter was not ashamed to testify to the healing and saving power of the name of Jesus. What could have happened? He could have died. But the, the Lord uses the weak and the foolish to proclaim his word with boldness to show that his power is on display and not ours. He would share the truth nonetheless, even if it meant his life. Around the world today, at this very minute, there are many who have to make that decision. Proclaim the name of Jesus or keep living. Proclaim the name of Jesus or stay free. What can help a person in such a situation? For Peter and John, it was obviously the filling of the Holy Spirit, but it was also remembering what they had seen and heard. Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge, for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. What we saw, what we heard, it is true. 
And it has eternal ramifications. Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the Savior. He is the one who healed this man. How can we not speak of him? How can we stay silent? How can we withhold that truth? Imagine a scenario where your house is on fire and your family's inside and you have the ability to put that fire out. But your neighbor comes up to you and says, listen, do not get any water on my shrubbery. If you mess up my shrubbery while you're putting out that fire, I'm going to have you thrown in jail. What are you saying to your neighbor? <laughs> you're saying, go ahead, th throw me in jail. I'm putting the fire out. Do what you got to do. I'm going to do what I got to do because I have to save those inside. There are times when disobedience to authority is warranted. We're going to dive much deeper into that as we go to the end of chapter 5. We're going to talk about uh, what Peter and John will say again in the end of chapter 5. We must obey God rather than men. There are times when we must say, with all due respect, I cannot follow your rules. You tell me not to speak in his name, and I say, you do what you got to do to me, but I'm going to speak in his name. We must obey God first. They knew what they had seen and heard. They knew the truth about Jesus. They could not help but speak of it. We too considered blessed because though we have not seen, we have believed. We have these same words of life that we must speak. What prevents you from speaking the words of life? Is it fear? Do you feel like I shouldn't be the one to do it? Please notice, common, uneducated men, right? It wasn't like Peter walked in and showed his list of credentials and said, now, now listen to me. Common, uneducated, ordinary, whatever word you want to use. And they're the ones that the Lord used to spread the gospel. And he's still doing it. Right? What prevents you from speaking them? They are true, and they are the words of life. Which brings us to the last point. The word we have to speak is the message of the cross, the message of Jesus. Jesus is the cornerstone, Peter says here. And I, I think you may have seen this theme being developed throughout our service, Psalm 118, which talks about the stone that the builders rejected being the cornerstone. We read it in 1 Peter chapter 2 about Jesus being the cornerstone. Peter is now telling these rulers, you are the fulfillment of Psalm 118. The gates of righteousness have been opened that all may come in who believe. Because you are the builders who rejected the cornerstone. They were the ones who judged him unworthy, not the type of Messiah they were looking for. Why not? 
Because as I mentioned earlier about this situation, Jesus was a threat to them. He was a threat to their kingdoms. He didn't affirm them, but he challenged them to see where they had missed the mark. He overturned tables in the temple. He called them hypocrites. He encouraged people to listen to them to the extent that they taught what was true, but not to do what they did. They said they were the mouthpieces of God, yet their hearts were far from him. So they attempted to do away with him. The builders rejected the stone. He is the, when we say cornerstone, what, what is a cornerstone? What's that mean? Some of your versions might say capstone. Both carry the same connotation. What do they mean? In a non-whispering voice. What's a cornerstone? First laid stone of the building, the, the foundation stone. What's a capstone? Say it again. Yeah, it's the one that kind of holds everything together, right? The one. So, so Jesus is the foundation. He is the stone that holds everything together. In him, everything is held together. He is the only foundation. He is the only hope. He is the one in whom salvation is found. No other name given under heaven among men by which we must be saved. Peter and John could not stop speaking about Jesus because he's the only hope of the world. Without him, we have nothing. Salvation comes by grace alone as we recognize how we, and we're not unlike these rulers, right? Even earlier, I, as I wrote this message, like, how many times do I do what I do because I want to protect myself? How many times do I ignore what's true because it's not convenient? Because I want to do what I want to do. How often is that true of us? Even we who believe in Christ, we still have that flesh that we carry around that still reveals itself, that still says, no, no, just your way is better. We have the same heart as these rulers apart from grace. And when that's revealed in us, we can rejoice in the fact that our salvation comes by grace alone. Not by our works. Through faith alone, in Christ alone. He did everything for the glory of God at all times in thought, in word, in deed, in motive. He was without error, without sin. And His righteousness, when we talk about in Psalm 118, open the gates of righteousness, right? His righteousness is our hope of the gates being opened unto us. He made Him, God made Him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Apart from Jesus Christ, there is no hope. There is no forgiveness of sin. There is no reconciliation with God. Doesn't that sound kind of exclusive? Isn't that really exclusive? That we get together and we talk about this one way to be made right with God. No other name. Aren't there lots of ways a person could be made right with God? 
People may say we sound exclusive, but what if I told you there used to be zero ways and now there's one way? Your good works will not save you because even your best works are tarnished by sin. Even the very, very best works of someone who does not believe in Jesus Christ ultimately put them in opposition to the Lord because they're doing it for some reason other than the glory of God. We are called to do everything we do for the glory of God. So our good works do not save us. Buddha doesn't save. Hinduism doesn't save. Mohammed doesn't save. Faithful Judaism doesn't save. Self-actualization doesn't save. None of it has the power to heal and restore, but Jesus has that power. The name of Jesus is the only name by which we must be saved. I'm saying the same thing a lot today because that's what Peter and John are driving home by the power of the Holy Spirit. Why do we have to talk in this guy's name? Why are we willing to be on trial? Because it's the only hope of this world. The church is built upon the person and work of Jesus. He is the cornerstone. Anything that calls itself church and is not built on this foundation is just a social club. Peter and John, while threatened, would not compromise. Because if you lose the message of Jesus, you lose salvation. You lose hope. The church that loses Jesus has lost any power for eternal good. And we're reminded in this passage that even as the work of Jesus is upsetting the rulers, that very same message continues to bear the fruit of changed hearts as the number comes to about 5,000. It says in verse 4, 5,000. It was 3,000. Now 5,000. Peter and John and all the apostles, they must go on with their work. This man before them and many others, present company included, had been made well by the mighty name of Jesus. They don't hide that reality from the rulers. They were tried and found not guilty, but they would be back in this court again. Darkness hates the light and will seek to eradicate it by whatever means necessary. But on this day, the people and we are reminded Jesus is mighty to heal and to save. Jesus is the saving name. Jesus is the cornerstone upon which the church is built and the gates of hell will not overcome it. Try to silence us if you must, but we must continue to declare the name and the praise of the one who died and was raised because salvation comes from no other. Let's pray. Thank you, Jesus that you are the cornerstone, the stone that the builders rejected. You have become the cornerstone. You are the living stone. Expose in us where we have built our own kingdoms. Expose in us where we have been afraid to speak of the name of Jesus. Forgive us, Lord, 
May we find forgiveness and healing in the name of Jesus and strength by the power of your Holy Spirit to boldly proclaim your name and your saving work in this world. Continue to do your mighty work among us, Lord. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.